0: Zero, A Digital Journey, a podcast series produced by Content With Purpose in partnership with BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Net Zero, A Digital Journey, a BCS and Content With Purpose podcast series exploring the essential role that the IT professions hold in addressing the climate crisis and achieving net zero targets. It's an interesting time for computing when it comes to our climate, I think, because on one hand, our ability to understand and predict both our planet and the consequences of our actions is dependent on extremely impressive computer models, which are obviously essential tools for helping us shape our future. And on the other hand, increased computing power doesn't come for free, either financially or in terms of energy use, and the carbon costs of huge servers are coming under increasing scrutiny. And so the IT sector needs to be mindful of having the lowest possible carbon footprint while at the still time providing and expanding the capabilities on which all this climate planning depends. And in this episode, we're going to be digging into all of this, how research and innovation in computing can help us with climate questions but also how we minimise its impact. We have two expert guests as always here to share their insight and the first one is Alex Bardell, the chair of BCS's Green IT Specialist Group. So Alex, to start us off just tell us a little bit about the Green IT Specialist Group. What What's it do and what's your remit?
2: So within the BCS we represent the interests of um, the Green IT specialists. So That is part of the the wider BCS community, but people who have a specific interest or a passing interest or professional interest in sustainability and technology. Um, And our idea is to build the community, share ideas, and to try and reach out into the wider um, IT uh, environment to try and promote sustainability um, and really to help people to transition away from high energy, um, high resource usage to a more sustainable uh, view of how we deliver compute um and how we utilize compute
1: and when it comes to the ideas that are generating the most buzz at the moment in in sustainable it what what is it is it is it just is it the very obvious things or are the new ideas coming along that people are talking about a lot
2: i think when when we look at it it really and the way we we've done it is we split it into two areas so rightly as you pointed out helen at the start um We need to keep our industry sustainable and we use a lot of resources, over 50 million tons of e-waste is generated every year um, and we need to try and do this better. We really need to focus on some of the the, the changes in ideas in terms of manufacturing. So we really want to close that manufacturing loop. So how do we better use the resources um, that are used to create technology in the first place? How can we extend the life of our technology? So um, if you go back a while ago, there was really this this sort of, Um, very wasteful view that you buy the latest greatest bit of hardware um, you run it for a period of time which wasn't really long enough and then effectively you got rid of it Um, and i think that attitudes are really changing here and we need to focus on how we can get better utilization out of our devices Um, i think this is really important because effectively Computer um, hardware should last a long time. There's no fundamental reason why it doesn't work, um, and some of the factors which are causing it to be thrown away um, are things that can be mitigated. So, the first user of the hardware um, maybe will run it for four years, but there's still a lot more use, and there's second users and third users who can um, make use of this. Uh, and so, what we're seeing is a growth in the the second-hand market for technology. Um, and there are companies out there, um, I, I know the one that we partner with, Navito, based in Denmark, who have effectively created a marketplace for second user equipment. Um, and why this is, is probably getting more um, standard and accepted is Because if you go back to look at the growth of cloud and cloud computing fundamentally changed how we design our our IT architecture. And before cloud, what we used to have is big mainframes. These are very, very expensive pieces of hardware, which were designed um, for failure and redundancy. Um, And, you know, they never went wrong, but they were astronomically expensive. So people kind of decided there was a cheaper way. And we sort of moved more into the concept of pizza box servers so we could put lots and lots and lots of servers into a rack. Um, We'd have a huge amount of compute for not very much money, um, relatively speaking. Um, And we started to design our applications. So they sort of floated on top of the hardware um, and they weren't tied to a specific server and these concepts of virtualization started growing. We move forward today where we have these um, mega data centers running cloud services. And effectively it's just a big pile of compute and a big pile of storage sitting there. and what's happening is that you can have failure you can have hardware not um you know failing within the the um, estate and it has absolutely no effect on your service so that means that the some of the worries and the anxieties about having to replace the kit every four years because if it failed you couldn't get support you couldn't get the parts that's probably not really prevalent anymore um unfortunately at the same time uh The reduced cost of hardware um, and the ability for people to kind of enter the market means that these big cloud service providers are still churning through their kit too quickly and um, that's being driven primarily by economic factors. Uh, But in principle, the way we design our applications to run today, there's no reason why we shouldn't keep the hardware uh, running for as long as possible. Um, And then when it does finally come to the end of its life, where our kind of focus needs to be is that we can effectively recycle it. And some of the problems we've had is that lots of the old kid had gone into supply chain um, and then disappeared to other countries where, in principle, they're being repaired. But in reality, some of them being recycled and not being recycled in a sustainable way, which is causing both environmental and health issues to the countries who are receiving it.
1: Tell you what, let's let's dig into some of this in a bit more detail in a bit. But I want to just introduce our second guest today, Um because these two things are going to overlap. So we want to set out everything so we can see all the overlaps. Um, So let's meet Professor Penny Endersby, who is the CEO at the UK Met Office. Uh, So quite a different job perhaps on the surface but underneath a lot of a lot of similar things so penny can you just set out for us what sort of you know everyone's heard of the met office you spend you you make the weather forecast that uh, people listen to in the morning um but can you set out for us what sort of computing the met office relies
3: on what is the scale of this operation and why is it necessary So it's absolutely vast. And Alex is right to say that um, weather and climate modelling is carried out on huge supercomputers, some of the biggest supercomputers in the world, Um, using enormous numerical simulations and we currently use a machine that's 15 petaflops 15,000 trillion calculations a second Uh, and that's actually a very old machine so Alex will be pleased we thrash it into the ground, it's got got no reuse value by the time we come to the end of it Um, but uh, we are replacing it with a yet bigger and more powerful machine that's going to be supplied by Microsoft and actually will be owned by them and we will be leasing and we're definitely moving towards a cloud provision model for both the uh, the simulation and the data because actually the data we use is so fast it won't be able to be transported in its entirety. So data proximate compute and edge is the, the only possible solution. Um, but obviously... The reason we want that is because the, the greater the scale of the compute that we can use, uh, the better the fidelity, resolution, ensemble size of the simulations we're able to carry out. And that's telling us about what we can expect um, in both the weather and the climate domains.
0: Net zero, a digital journey. This episode is sponsored by Newcastle University. Newcastle University School of Computing undertakes innovative and exploratory computer science teaching and research. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, netzerodigital.bcs.org forward slash UK. Net Zero, a digital journey. Well, it is.
1: I've had the, the privilege of going around the Met Office computers a couple of times and they're they're sort of very impressive and very unimpressive at the same time because they're these huge rooms of computers, but then they're sort of quite quiet rooms with lots of little flashing lights. Um, and, and it's quite hard to visualise what's, you know, the, 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 the ideas that come out are very different to the quite mundane outside.
3: I'm sure the, the, your IT people would think it's not mundane. Um, well, I think all of us would agree that any data centre looks quite a lot like any other data centre. And uh, you know, one 19-inch rack with flashing lights and a lot of fiber optics at the back looks like another. Um, it's the the physics and the inventiveness of what goes into those codes that is the, the the brilliant and the exciting bit. Although actually, we have to operate at the Met Office right at the cutting edge of what is possible in terms of large compute and in handling enormous data as well. And we 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 take in 200 billion observations a day, um, and we produce. Uh, terabytes of data every day. Um. So
1: we we are. It's probably worth just just worth elaborating on that point. That what's perhaps. Um- i don't know whether it's unique but it's certainly unusual about the met office operation is that you are as you say you are taking in data every single day because to make the best weather forecast you need right up to the date measurements from everywhere of all different types temperature and humidity and all kinds of things and these are all ingested every day combined with the data from before and so there's this like it's a very it doesn't stop basically it's like you run a huge computing task but it's not just you do it once and you
3: go and have a cup of tea this is a continual process that's continually being updated absolutely we 24 7, 365. We're part of critical national infrastructure. We have to be that sort of resilient centre. And in terms of the four Vs of big data, Enormous volume and a lot of velocity because, yes, we ingest all the time and we're performing an ensemble of forecasts every three hours around the clock. Um, we do have issues with variety. Those, those, um, observations come from all kinds of different sensors, but about two thirds of them come from satellites. And if we want to use observations that aren't the very best quality done by ourselves or UMETSAT, we then run into the veracity issues as well. There's lots of sensors of opportunity that we would like to use. Um, but They're they're more widespread and they cover things like the oceans that we might not have all the information we want. But they're not necessarily maintained and and verified to the standards of our own surface weather stations. When it comes to what's coming
1: next, you said you know the Met Office has to be at the cutting edge of a lot of of this stuff. How? What sort of technological advances is it? Is it hardware advances? These modeling advances? And why is this so important when we're talking about addressing climate issues?
3: So yes, it's both. Just brute scale has brought enormous improvements in weather forecasting about a day a decade. So your five-day forecast now is as good as your one-day forecast was 40 years ago. And that has very largely been built on just Moore's law and more compute. But at the same time, we're able to increase the sophistication of the representation of the whole Earth system. And that's really where we're heading now because Moore's law is going to run out on us Um, so to look at the whole of the climate system the oceans the cryosphere the ecosystems the land use not just the atmosphere our next computer will enable us to sort of take on interactions of the ice sheets in our earth system model for example and then the other side of that as well is for things like attribution studies and people keep saying to us was this event caused by climate change and really they want us to answer straight away not six months later when we've gone away and done some more science and in order to do that we what we actually do is we run a thousand winters in the UK with an unperturbed climate and a thousand winters in the UK with today's climate and a thousand winters in the UK with 2050's possible climate. And we look at the frequency and extremity of severe events, but that's hugely compute hungry, Um, although you do only have to do it once. And then coming into that as well is the increasing power of artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to take some of the heavy lifting off the detailed numerical simulations and enable us to do things more efficiently. Well, I do.
1: One of the things uh, I do remember at the Met Office is that you still have a chief forecaster. There's still a person that writes the weather forecasts. Chat GPT hasn't got there yet, um, Alex. So when it comes to looking at an operation of that kind of scale, what sort of IT and like how your is, is there a judgment call here between you know do we need it? So I think in the case of climate models, we would say probably that is a thing we definitely do need. You know, is there ever a case for? Um, not doing some things because for first sustainability reasons and how should we think about like you know when it comes to operations like that that's so essential how much potential is there to, to make that sustainable and then we'll hear from penny about what the met office is actually doing
2: so i think um where we are today is the the digital cat is out of the bag so it's going to be quite hard to put it back in again um so I guess, you know, specifically with, with Penny system, I'm sure that when the current computer system comes to the end of its effective life for, um, high performance computing, there will be lots of other uses for this hardware. And as you gradually cascade down the scale, this hardware can be reused in other environments with different kind of operating systems and repurposed. So it, it will carry on running for a period of time. It's no longer fit for purpose, um, for an HPC environment, but it's definitely fit for purpose for other environments. Um, But I think the other really important factor, and this is one of the the kind of messaging that came out of COP27, is there are a lot of gaps need to be answered and we have to look in our ICT kit bag and say what is the technology that we have today that's going to match this requirement Um, and really very interesting from from having the weather system is you know could we have better predicted things like the flooding that happened in Pakistan Um, and how do we actually transfer that information that we hold within the UK and the information and the knowledge and all the things we're learning from our algorithms and our big data analytics how are we actually able to transfer this information to the people who need it and the people who are really being affected by climate change today Um, and so what we need to look at is how can technology gradually sort of send its tentacles out so that if somebody has a mobile phone in Pakistan and there's a risk of flooding how do we get that information how do we send these warning systems out to people Um, and also how can we use this data to better predict what's going to happen in the future so that we need to start planning how we can mitigate for climate change as probably a, a bit of an acceptance that there are going to be some changes in our environment and how do we build and construct um, sea defences? How do we construct homes? How do we use this information that's being held within this wonderful HPC computer to then provide um Data and it is data, provide APIs to third parties who could then use this data and use these APIs to better understand what's happening and then try and mitigate and predict and carry out the actions we need firstly to get us to net zero so we stop consuming the carbon we're consuming but also how do we change our living environment um, in such a way that it can deal with the changes we're expecting to see.
1: Okay, there's a lot to pick up on that. So very, very quickly then, just before I go back to Penny. So you mentioned, um, you know, high performance computing hardware being passed down the chain. Is there an effective mechanism for that? I mean, is, is it the case that you put it on eBay and someone will find out? Like, so someone finishes. I can see Penny shaking her head here. Um, go on then, Penny,
3: you tell, you, you. this is clearly a bee in your bonnet. No, I don't, I don't think it is a bee in my bonnet. Honestly, with our hardware, we believe that by the time we get to the end of its life, it, it will not be reusable for anybody we, we work it so hard because it runs absolutely to its maximum capability all the time and it's actually beyond its design life that doesn't mean we shouldn't dispose of it responsibly and make sure that the very large quantities of rare metals and things that it can t- it it contains and are not used. Um, but actually, it was the uh, information security aspects of the sticking it on eBay, which, which were causing me to shake my head with particular with particular <laughs> alarm. Um, on Alex's points, there were, there were kind of, you could fork this podcast three ways. I'd love to talk about what we're doing around the net zero and sustainability. We could talk about the early warning for all and the difference between the capabilities of nations, or we could talk about the changed climate we're already in and um, how we expect it to go on changing. And I think you might have to pick where, to, where well, we'll, you want we'll to go come first. To that.
1: We'll get a summary from you of the current climate in a second. But on that first question of very briefly, what the Met Office currently does to, to make these, this big computing system more sustainable, what, what's the status of that?
3: So the Met Office we are really passionate about walking the walk ourselves. We tell everybody else that the climate's changing and we need to mitigate, we need to adapt so we think we should be doing it. We are well on our way on a journey to be a net zero organisation by 2030. We are already running the current machine on renewable energy and actually when we specified the future machine, it had to be on a net zero basis Um, and we're going much further than that so it's affecting everything from our our business travel, so we largely now do all domestic and most European travel by train um, to our um, um, to uh- the, the energy we use in this building and not using gas in the kitchens, or all, all those sorts of things. And we're now finding, as everybody else does, the challenging bit is our Schedule 3, our supply chain emissions. And actually, those tend to come, well, they come from the supercomputer. We've dealt with that with Microsoft. Uh, they come from the European Centre for Midrange Weather Forecasting, who uses another great, enormous supercomputer. And they come from UMETSAT, which is our satellites, our weather-observing satellites. And those are multilateral international bodies So, we're having to act as a convener to encourage all the nations who broadly are all on side because they're all met services and they understand it um, to say, we want these bodies to be net zero. You need your own net zero strategy because without you doing it, we're never going to get there either. Um, so that's sort of one aspect of the Met Office and our own sustainability um, requirements. But uh, my staff and my board are all equally committed and, and really want us to do this.
1: Okay, well, let's come to the output of some of those models. Then. so, So very briefly, I mean, we hear a lot of talk about targets, 1.5C, 2 degrees C. I think the current status is not always very clear to the to people who don't listen to all of this kind of thing. So just set that out for us and, and the scale of this challenge, because this is urgent now. I mean, what we're talking about, it's not just what we do, but it's how quickly we do it. So just tell us a bit about the climate summary. Absolutely.
3: So there is no doubt we are already in a changed climate. We're operating somewhere between plus 1.1 and plus 1.2 degrees. Um, there is equally, I don't suppose any of your audience will be in doubt, but there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the overwhelming majority of of warming is caused by human carbon emissions Um, so the IPCC report says it's unequivocal that the large majority of climate change is due to human carbon emissions agreed by all scientists from all countries Um, so yes absolutely the need to mitigate and stop emitting is urgent 1.5C wasn't plucked out of the air. It was a target that was chosen and we started at 2 and we rained back as we understood better where the really severe impacts were most likely to kick in. Uh, the remaining carbon budget is disappearing really quickly. We've only got about 10% of the budget left and at current emission rates, that'll be gone in eight years. So the remaining paths to 1.5 are very few and a lot of them contain some overshoot. That doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying. Every fraction of a degree matters. Um, but it does mean that in terms of just mitigation, we need to act really fast. So stop emitting carbon. And the world won't stop warming until we do, until sometime after that, indeed. But also the adaptation, which Alex already touched on, um, So, all these all these changes are, we saw many of them this year in the floods in Pakistan, were in a particularly extreme example, but records being shattered worldwide by 5C, which is just an unthinkable number, 40C for the first time in the UK. And we had actually done that attribution study in advance, which was the first time the Met Office was able to come out and say, uh, we believe that this was effectively impossible in an an undisturbed climate at the time it was happening. Um, So these things are here and now, not just for the future
1: okay well so let's pick up then on some of the adaptation stuff alex and you were talking about the importance of technology for and, and spreading you know the information getting out to, to people that need it how how big a challenge is that especially particularly with climate relevant things because these are things that you know some of them you might get a medium range forecast but some of them you only really realize how bad it's going to be at quite short notice so what what's this how can it help with that
2: well i think it is if you boil it down to its constituent past, it's predominantly about data. So it's about how can we share data um, to the people who need it. Now... You know, we live in a country which has got a good broadband, which has got good networks, has got good ICT equipment. But what you have to consider when we're looking at climate change mitigation is it's the whole world. And so how do we get the data and the information to um, areas where the infrastructure isn't as mature as ours? Um, And so how are we going to provide some of this capability uh, to to these countries which are starting off on their technology journey? And the other thing is that there's an expectation is that Us, the wealthy countries, need to transfer um, money, transfer resources, transfer capability to the countries which aren't so wealthy so we can help them with that journey. And one of the, the big challenges we face today is how do we manage that? So if we're going to run a project in a different country and it requires a governance model to be in place um, and the governance structure doesn't exist today how are we going to lift this governance structure so our, our projects that we need to do in other countries are successful and you know there's a big gap and if you listen to the people at COP27 that gap needs to be filled by technology and we hear the word technology mentioned all the time but i it's a slightly worrying thing is that how do we ensure that we use the right technology and we don't go down a technology rabbit hole, which we've had definitely done in the past, where we decide that this sticking pass is going to solve the problem and it doesn't really do it because we don't have that capability. So we have to be careful to make sure that the ask from us, the people in the technology industry, can be delivered with the things we have available to us today so that we know that we can repurpose, reuse, because this is what we always do anyway, um, And deliver something that will actually work rather than trying to deliver something which in the end fails. And as we said, we've only got eight years, so we can't disappear in a path that is not going to deliver us to the pathway of net zero.
3: Can I come in on that, Helen, would you mind? Because um, as well as being the chief executive of the Met Office, one of the jobs that comes with that is being the permanent representative for the UK to the World Meteorological Organization. And that is actually the great vector for Weather to the World, and um, uh, and one of their big programmes at the moment is Early Warning for All. And looking at how we do we solve exactly that problem that Alex was so eloquently articulating of making sure that the the quality of warning that we're able to give for severe events in the UK is available to populations that are much less well-supplied, much less well-networked. And one of the things that the WMO is able to do is to broker the standards for that data exchange and something the Met Office does quite a lot actually which is a little known part of our mission is to do that overseas development work for quite a different range of countries so some of the most the, the most least developed countries we might actually just be helping them to set up a TV studio and train how to Um, presenter weather but for other sort of mid-level countries we work with them on um, helping them develop their own capabilities in climate modeling and looking at severe events and the, um, the ability to predict those for their country and we try very hard to do that in a sustainable way so it's definitely teaching a man to fish <laughs> um, and that we leave a capability behind that they're able then to sustain um, themselves, not needing us always to be there holding their hands, which we obviously won't be able to do. And I, th- I thought it might be of interest because this is obviously one of the, everyone knows you say we, we provide the weather forecast you listen to in the morning, um, but they don't necessarily know about our, our international mission. Well, there's an interesting question here,
1: I think, about um you know, data availability, but and who owns it? Who's in control of it? And and how much? You know, the the rich countries also are the ones with the big computers and the big computing power, and that means that we run our forecasts. And how much? You know, you talk. Both of you have spoken about the urgency of this, and is there time, like how much does it have to be direct help because we already have the capability? And how much is there time to train and help other countries to develop their own capability? Because obviously that that takes longer than eight years. So where's the the sort of balance between those two things? So the
3: data is already available. One of the things about any weather forecasting is it's inherently, it's got to be internationally collaborative because no one can make a forecast without um, observations from all over the globe, which is what the WMO was originally set up to do Collect those, but a quid pro quo for actually the da- the, the um, new data policy for the WMO is providing back the model data free of charge for all. So that that's available. The question then is how do you how do you get it in a usable form to people? Um, and that's the stage that we're sort of looking on on, on next. So, uh, particularly as we move to. Um, uh, forecasting um, on cloud compute. Can we cut out that middle person so that other nations don't need a supercomputer in a model? They can go straight to how they slice the data for their region and turn that into a forecast for them. And that looks increasingly possible now with um, with modern cloud um, capabilities. So I think it can be done within the eight years comfortably.
1: Well, it's it's always good to have some always good to have some optimism. I mean, it's, it's, lots of things are changing very quickly. Alex, I'm interested in your opinion on. Um, well, it's, I mean, it comes up a lot, but greenwashing, right? There's all these things in this area. And there's also, I mean, it applies in this area of, of how we communicate data as well. There's all these claims that are made, um, whether they're environmental claims or they're claims that, you know, data is being shared or it's it's actually useful. You know, it's I guess it's easy for someone to have a, a project and they sort of say, oh, well, we met all our goals, but then it kind of fizzles out because it wasn't structured properly at the other end. How, how do we know how well any of this is working? Do we know? I mean, how do we avoid both the greenwashing and the sort of ethics
2: washing I guess so I guess greenwashing is either an example of callous behaviour or just you know an honest mistake is that people want to appear sustainable and, and you know they say ah well we are sustainable um But I guess one of the the challenges is, you know, how do you validate this? And and when you look at the supply chain um, of of any firm, the supply chain is very long and it reaches off all the way to the mining when the the resources are extracted to the final product, the product's lifestyle and life cycle, and what happens to it at the end of its life cycle. Um, So it's really quite difficult to understand what the, the sustainability factor is. But I think one good starting point, and this is what we always say, is if you look at Um, organisations like ISO, and ISO have the 14,000 series of standards for sustainability. Um, I saw a really nice thing from the um, British BSI, who have a um, a PDF which has a page and has all of the standards which relate to um, sustainability from manufacturing, resources, mining, shipping, all of the bits and components. And so... An easy starting point is to say, right, OK, um, what is the sustainability standards you meet and actually try and validate these standards to understand if they are coming from a recognised third party. Um, some of the standards which were around earlier on was kind of, not, I wouldn't say made up, but they were not really backed up by anything. But if you, if you see that the, your supplier um, or your third party or the person you're buying your services from um, can deliver an ISO standard or a BSI standard or a European Union Code of Conduct standard against the data centre, um, then that's an indication that they've been assessed, that assessors, third party assessors have been there, that they've met a certain criteria. Obviously, it's useful to read the small print and make sure that these are deliverables rather than intent to deliver, um, and lots of people intend to deliver things, and I absolutely think they do, but whether they actually get there or not is a different question. Um, so, that's always a good starting point. And the other thing now is, and, and it's really about consumers, and if you're going to buy some new um, hardware kit, um, a new device, a new tablet, a new phone… The question you should be really asking is how sustainable was this thing when it was manufactured? And if the supplier can't answer that question, then you shouldn't buy it. And if there's enough consumer um, pressure here to say to manufacturers and suppliers, we need to know how sustainable this thing is. We need to know that it's been made in a way that I can repair it so I don't have to throw it away. Um, And we need to know that there is some provision in place that when it reaches the end of its life, we can actually realistically recycle it. then that is going to be a stronger factor than, than many things because it's consumer behavior which drives change um, and we can even see i mean i did read an article that bmw now is asking all of its suppliers to be able to prove that they are sustainable otherwise they're saying that in the future they won't be using them anymore so um, there's two factors consumers need to actually say this is important to us because if in eight years we cook our planet that's not going to be good for any of us. We, the consumer, need to say that we're only going to consume sustainable things. Um, and the suppliers need to be able to prove somehow to us that the things are actually sustainable in the first place. And that's with standards, with ISO standards, with, with um, um, the, the British standards, with all the standards which are internationally recognized. And I suppose that's a good starting point in our way of the journey of how we can ensure things are more sustainable
1: okay so i want to i mean this like penny said this whole thing is a hydra it goes off in lots of directions but i want to pick up on the question of adaptation so so penny you you alluded to you know there's this split in people who talk about climate between mitigation which is stopping the problem and adaptation which is what you do about it once you've got the problem and and we need to have both but what i'm interested in is how is the it sector itself going to have to adapt you know we know society might have to you know not live in places where are so likely to flood and agriculture might have to move so that societal adaptation but in the case of um the it industry itself you know servers produce a lot of heat Uh, maybe you don't want to put them in hot places what what are the sort of implications for how the how computing itself might have to adapt
3: to a changed world i'm not sure i'm the best place alex might be a better place to answer that than i am but i would i would start by saying overheating data centers is definitely one of the things that we're already seeing and we saw it in the uk um, it, when we had the extreme heat this summer um, i i think that everybody 's going to have to look at um, you know their their real estate um, and and the uh, operating specs for all, all the equipment they use and that 's in the IT industry and elsewhere so um, your your data center may be where it 's uh, vulnerable to sea level rise, it may be where it's vulnerable to overheating, um, or it, it it may be um, dependent on transport that's go- that's going to be taken out by by extreme weather. So all of those things are um, are, are relevant. But I, I, I definitely would. That's probably more Alex's bag than mine to to, to speak to. Okay, yeah. Alex. <laughs>
2: so I think one thing is we we don't see a, a growing data center uh, industry in the Nordics and cold northern countries for a reason. The reason why that is, is because, you know, for most of the year, you don't actually need to use energy to cool these systems down. The weather is cold enough to make that happen. Um, the other thing is that computers are being designed and should carry on being designed to run a little bit warmer. Um, Moore's Law was the reason why uh, they started getting hotter and hotter because all the electrons started leaking and, and that caused the chips to run hot. But in reality, um, as we say, if Moore's laws isn't growing at the rate it was before, then you know the focus should really be on running chips that can actually run at room temperature and then we don't need to cool them. Um the other thing is that the data center, in the olden days our utilization of servers was awful. We were getting sort of 10, 20% utilization, and 80% of the time they would just be idling around. So now if you look at the cloud data centers, they're running their processes at 100%. They're running their computers all the time. And if they're not being used, they spin them down. They don't use that resource. And this is again, when I said originally how the architecture changed, this is how you can do that. Um, So yes, absolutely we want to get more from our data centers. We don't want to be cooling them. Um, We need to build more efficient data centers uh, so that the way the fabric of the building is constructed is more um, environmentally friendly. And we probably want to try and avoid putting them in places where um, the energy comes from um, un- environmentally friendly sources. So, you know, if you build your data center and the energy comes from brown coal, that's not good. If you put your data center up in Iceland where it's coming from geothermal, then that's a carbon neutral way of doing it. Um, so, yeah, so that that's definitely something we, we need to change. Um and there are hundreds of other factors, but I think that that's probably good for a starter.
1: Brilliant. Well, I mean, we're we're pretty close to being out of time, but so we're just we're sort of coming towards the end now. But I just wondered for each of you, what's your you know, there's a on the on these topics. What are the key messages that you think need to be got out there? If you're talking to people in the IT sector who are interested, you know, policymakers, perhaps new people coming into to this field. What are the things that when we're thinking about IT and climate, and you know. All the things we've talked about, what are the the big things that you just want to kind of take people, you know, show to people on the street? Everyone should know this.
3: Um, Penny first. Uh, I'm going to do a very quick three. On the mitigation, it's going to be inescapable and you're going to be asked for it by your own own customer base. Um, So, being prepared to show how you are sustainable is going to be a requirement of you. On the adaptation, you are going to be faced with the impacts of climate change from today, not from some decades in the future. But the the point I would really like like to leave with, because we often characterise this as though it's all around self-denial. And and Alex talked about you're only buying IT that's sustainable and using your consumer voice. And I'm, I'm all for that. But don't forget that we are looking at alternative futures where one is very much preferable and it comes with a whole lot of other advantages. So it's not just about do this or the planet will burn, although there's a good case to be made for that, there is a more positive vision to strive for. We could be living in a cleaner, greener, healthier, more equal, more but more biodiverse, quieter world and still have the things that we have today. And I think solution aversion is one of the things that makes people most nervous about getting to grips with the things they need to do for climate change so pointing out that it that that there is a there is a positive and pleasant version of 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 a carbon neutral future for all of us is a really important thing to do
1: well there's that great cartoon isn't it that has um someone saying what if we're wrong about climate and we make a better healthier cleaner world for nothing and it's that sort of thing isn't it um alex final message what what are the important things that need to get out there
2: I think the the final message for me is that it's the responsibility of all of us. So, you know, we need to make the right decisions to select um, our technology and to select our solutions uh, in a way that they are sustainable. But it's possible, and there are sustainable solutions out there. Um, And if we look to see how our industry, IT, has changed in terms of how more efficient it has become in the time that I've been working in the industry, Um, so there's, there's definitely a way of doing it. And the other thing is that IT is a good way of solving problems. And I guess we have a number of problems we need to solve to reach net zero. So we, as the industry, need to wake up and say, okay, Our expertise is useful, and how are we going to use this knowledge we hold in our heads? to answer some of these questions that we're being asked for. Um, So we're being asked by COP27 to come up with these solutions. And it's up to us, the industry, to use the skills we have, to use the tools, the the applications, the software, the hardware, the data centers to help provide some of these answers, which will allow us to get to net zero. And actually, it's something we need to do today because we've got to get a move on. Um, But I'm confident that that the people in our industry have the knowledge Um, we're quite a dynamic industry. You know, We are where the startups come from. People are very um, able to take ideas and make them into things very quickly. And that's just the nature of the industry we're in. Um, so we want to try and invigorate these people who have been doing digital and app and social media to say actually no guys the next big thing we need to do is mitigate climate change so can you use all of those lovely skills all of that lovely technology and actually get us down that road where we meet a pathway where we get to net zero um, before we we um, cause damage to our planet
1: Great. Well, that is a great place to end. Thank you very much to our two guests for today, Alex Bardell and Penny Endersby. Do look out for the other podcasts in this series. We have covered loads of topics and are covering lots of topics, training and collaboration and e-waste and new technologies, all that kind of stuff. So have a look out for all of that. I'm Helen Cheresky, and you've been listening to Net Zero, A Digital Journey.
0: Thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Newcastle University. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Net Zero, A Digital Journey series by going to netzerodigital.bcs.org forward slash UK or simply searching for hashtag Net Zero Digital on social media. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on socials to check out more of our podcast collaborations.